in seminary, and honestly, uh, I got the better end of the deal. Uh, Peter and Maggie both really had a reputation for, for being servants. Uh, and I just have always respected Peter uh, and Maggie both for that. Uh, and uh, I like to think that I, I, I got to have a small uh, part to play in them getting together. I, I may be imagining that, but I remember, you know, before they were officially dating, uh, every, everyone could kind of see something there, you know. This was like a match made in heaven. And uh, uh, I was, you know, we were rooting for them to start dating. And so uh, uh, I like to play racquetball. So I, I had uh, Peter come play racquetball with me one day, and Maggie came along as well. The three of us were playing. And then uh, I really wanted to see them start dating, so I just left. And uh, that, that worked out great, as, uh, as it turns out. So, uh, but uh, I'm from Lamar's, Iowa. I'm at a Bible church in Lamar's. I'm the assistant pastor there. Uh, and uh, I've spoken here a, a couple years ago. Uh, and then next week, I believe uh, Peter uh, has asked um, Michael Barr to come. He's from our church as well. I think he's he's spoken here as well. And it's just I, I think it's neat that. Uh, you know, really the thing that unites us as Christians, uh, it, it's not necessarily where we're from. I mean, that's a special thing, but the blood of Christ. Here we are. I, I've never met most of you, and yet we have this thing in common. We, we uh, unite under the word of God and through the blood of Christ. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful thing? Uh, we're going to look at the text this, this morning. Go ahead and turn your Bible so that you're ready to, to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, and as you're turning there, I'd like to just uh, open us up again in, in a time of prayer as we begin. Lord, it's, it's good to be here with, with your church, uh, with other believers in Christ. And as we take a few minutes now to open up your divine, precious word, uh, Lord, would you speak to us? Help me to have the right things to say. God, would I say... Uh, and Lord, would you uh, impact our lives through your word, through the text this morning. So, we love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Well, I'm glad to, to get to, to bring the word to you this morning. And this text that we're going to look at today is a very special text to me. Uh, because it shows, I think, the heart of Christ for people. So I want you to think, just as we, we before we get going in this text this morning, I want you to think about what, what are some of the burdens that you are carrying through life this morning? Uh, as we were sharing prayer requests earlier, uh, it's, it's just not hard for us to, to realize we walk through life with different burdens, don't we? Uh, if you and I were to sit down just to have coffee together and we were to swap stories about what's going on in your life, and we were to share what, what, what's the burden on your heart right now. What are you walking through in life that's difficult? I'm guessing it wouldn't take, like, a lot of soul-searching to be able to find something. We, as humans, walk through life with, with different burdens, don't we? That's part of what it is to be a human. It'd be great to just say, you know, I don't, uh, I don't have to struggle with anything in life. That would be great, wouldn't it? But that's not quite how it goes. There's a real spectrum, isn't there, for us as humans. Some people walk through life, and, and maybe you're having a 
just a great go of things. You're young and everything's bright in front of you. That's great. Others, not as much. And life is hard. Um, I was listening to the prayer request and it just it made me think of just my own church and my own family and the, old, the, the struggles that we walk through in life. For some, there are are just a, a path of real physical pain. And I know people, and they walk through life, and they just live life with physical pain. That's, that's a burden they carry. I know people who, who are walking through life, and their family is just broken. Or, or different relationships in their family are, are broken. That's hard, and they live life with that. Maybe for you, as you think about that question for your life, what burden am I carrying... Uh, maybe you've just had a stressful week. I, I don't know. The list goes on and on. But here's, here's why I want to bring this up before we get into the text. Because I want to ask you this. When Jesus thinks about you, and he thinks about the burdens that you're carrying in life, how does Jesus feel about you? What's his opinion of you as he sees the, the struggle and the mess and the stress in your life? You know, I think, you know, sometimes for me personally, like I'm hesitant to kind of open up and share what I'm really going through with somebody else because, you know, honestly, there's this question, like, what are they going to think about me if they knew the burdens that I was carrying or they knew the things that's going on in my life? What, what would they think about me? What would their opinion be about me? And what does Jesus' opinion about me? What does he think about me as he sees the burden and the stress and the mess? And that's what this text, I think, reveals a little bit about Jesus. It shows us, it gives us this little window into what Jesus feels about people. And here's what we're going to see. Here's, here's kind of the nutshell, is that Jesus passionately, deeply, genuinely loves troubled, distressed people. Isn't that amazing? Like you, you, you probably already knew that coming today. But the, but the point of this text, the point of this morning is just to... To stop a minute and kind of think about that. The chapter of, of chapter 9, one of the last verses in the text, summarizes what Jesus was doing with this comment. I think it's verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that great? Like, Jesus' opinion of the people, like, there's these four accounts, these four stories we're going to look at briefly. And his opinion of them is, number one, they're very distressed. They're very troubled. His opinion about them, his kind of evaluation is these people, it's rough. <laughs> they're rough around the edges. They're carrying a lot. Things are not great for them. And how does Jesus feel about them? He has compassion. And that's beautiful. And I'm just I'm convinced that we need to remember that. We need a reminder of that, to know that, like, how does Jesus feel about me? What is Jesus' opinion about me? Well, a lot of things I'm sure we could say. But one of the things that's important to remember is that Jesus has this profound compassion for troubled, burdened, grieving people. So turn with me again. If you're not there, Matthew chapter 9. There's four accounts we're going to see starting in verse 18. There's four accounts. Each centering around troubled, burdened, and distressed people. Number one, there's a, there's a dying little girl. Number two, there's a suffering and an impoverished woman. 
Then there's two blind men. And then there's a demon-oppressed man. So let's look at these. Let's start in verse 18. And I'm going to read down to verse 26 as we begin. Verse 18 says this. While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. So let's talk about this. These first two accounts here, two of four, we'll spend most of our time centered around this, these two accounts. Matthew has a way, Matthew likes to summarize, and so uh, he gives kind of the bullet points of this story, and he, he kind of squeezes the story down into a couple bullet points. Uh, uh, other gospel writers share this same account. Mark and Luke both share this account, and they give a much uh, more detailed account. Matthew is known for kind of giving, giving bullet points. Uh, he's just saying that the girl has died, but Matt, Mark and Luke can't, can't tell us more about how, how uh, the, the, the man learns that the, the girl has died kind of halfway through. Matthew likes to give a, a, just the bullet points version. What we find out in Mark and Luke is that the man has, has left his daughter behind. And, and he's told halfway home that that she died think about that think about how devastating that is for a father now i want to kind of set the scene a little bit more from mark and luke we can piece together jesus is returning home from his trip that was on the other side of the sea of galilee that's where he healed there's a man who is oppressed by many demons and he healed that man you remember that story all the, the the demons go into the pigs and the pigs go running into down the steep hills into the Sea of Galilee. Jesus left that region, and he comes home. He comes home to Capernaum. Now, here's the thing about Capernaum. Capernaum is this small little fishing village. It's on the Sea of Galilee. Gal the Sea of Galilee is not that big of a lake. It's like eight miles across, 13 miles long. So it's big, but it's not that big. And Capernaum is this little, this little fishing town right smack dab on the edge of that lake. And this is actually where Jesus had settled down. Uh, five chapters earlier in Matthew 4, 13, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. So that's important to know just about Jesus' life and his ministry. He settled down in an actual place. He did a lot of traveling, but he settled in Capernaum. And so he has relationships there. He has, he, he has a home there, presumably, where he settled down. You can actually go there today. That's on my bucket list. Has, there, has anyone ever been to Israel in this room? I've never been to Israel. That's on my bucket list to go there and to go to Capernaum. 
uh, you can see some ruins there. There's a, a synagogue that was built there in Capernaum. Uh, one was there in Jesus' day. You can go and see the ruins of one that was, it was actually 400 years after Jesus. That's the ruins you see. But it was built on foundations from much earlier. So perhaps if you go to Capernaum today, when you look at the foundation of the, the little synagogue there, that was very likely the very synagogue that Jesus uh, would have seen. And that synagogue is actually important. And it comes into play in our story and it's important because Jesus preached in that synagogue in this little fishing town more than once. Mark 1 says this. Mark 1 says they went to, into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching as one having authority, not as the scribe. So, so picture, I'm trying to set up the scene here. So, so Capernaum, small town, everybody knows everybody. Synagogue in this town. Jesus has settled there. He teaches there from time to time. John gives another account of Jesus in Capernaum teaching. That's where he gives the message where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. It's interesting that as Luke tells this story of, of, of this daughter who dies and then is raised, the messenger comes to Jairus, who's the dad, and says, why trouble the teacher any longer? In other words, Jesus has a reputation. He's got the reputation of being the teacher. So Jesus was very familiar with the city of Capernaum, with the synagogue in Capernaum. Maybe you remember who built the synagogue in Capernaum. There was a centurion, pretty important guy, 100 soldiers under him. He had a dying servant he had sent leaders from the synagogue to Jesus, asking Jesus to help. And so from all the, I think it's this, this matters. I think it's, it's quite possible that Jesus has a relationship with whoever it is that kind of runs the leaders of this synagogue. Here's why that matters. The little girl who dies, guess what her dad does? Her dad is a leader in this synagogue. And this man is desperate. This, des this desperate man. He's a synagogue official. He would have been in charge of selecting who was going to pray, who would, who would preach the scripture, who would read. Usually there's, there's only one of his particular role in a synagogue. So he's an important guy. But his daughter is 12 years old. And she's about to die. Uh, I have a little girl. She's only four. But this story hits a little different, having a little girl, i got to tell you. Imagine, imagine that your little girl is about to die, and you face a choice. Do I stay with her in the last moments of her life, or do I leave and go get help? Jesus has already healed people in Capernaum. He healed the centurion's servant. Perhaps this man had seen that. Jairus is the dad. Perhaps he had seen that. And he's got to make a choice. And so what he does, he comes to Jesus. He leaves his girl and he goes to Jesus. The other accounts tell us that he fell down on his face before Jesus. So Jesus decides to help. Jesus and his disciples leave and they go to this man's house. 
And so just picture the scene. Like if you're the dad, if I'm, if I'm the dad in this scenario, and my girl is dying back home, and I'm thinking, Jesus, we're not walking. <laughs> we're running. I mean, we're, we're making way through the crowd, and, and everyone wants to see Jesus. They're crowding around Jesus. But this man's saying, we don't have time for that. We're going. We're running. This man is desperate. This man is troubled. He's he, kind of like, you know, at the end of the chapter, it says that Jesus looked around, all the people, they're distressed, they're troubled. How, like, what's Jesus' opinion about those kinds of people? He has compassion on them. So they're rushing to Jairus' house, but there's a problem. Other people need Jesus, too. There's a crowd. Look at verse 20. It says this, And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to, her, to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. Luke tells us that the crowds were, were crowding in and pressing in on Jesus. This woman is kind of an inter interruption here. She's had this problem. It's a constant flow of blood, a hemorrhage. The text tells us that she's been suffering for how many years? Twelve. How old is the uh, Jairus' daughter? Twelve. It's kind of interesting. This is a private and embarrassing thing for her to suffer from. She's been living with this pain. It's like in secret almost. It's day in, day out. She's seen all kinds of doctors and she's spent all her money. Uh, that's, that still happens today, by the way, doesn't it? It's a hard thing. When people spend all their money trying to get help, they're no better in the end. Nobody can hear her. Uh, this this flow of blood made her ritually unclean. That, that means just for, for the, the Jewish culture and the Jewish way of life, it's not that she was in a constant state of sin. That's not what it meant to be unclean. It's just to, to, to do certain rituals, to do certain things. She, she had to go through uh, a cleansing. And, and anyone who touched her would be ritually unclean. And so this is a devastating condition to live with. So here's the scene. The crowd is rushing off like an ambulance to save the dying girl. The woman thinks to herself, if only I can touch his garment. She comes, Matthew says, she came from behind. Is, I kind of wonder, is that because she doesn't want anyone to know? Is, is, is she just wanting to touch his garment, be healed, and go away? In desperation, she lunges. She reaches out and touches his cloak. But verse 20 tells us something. It's just this interesting detail. She touched the fringe of his cloak. Do, do you get the sense for how desperate this is? Uh, the, the Jewish men would often wear these robes that had like the tassels at the end, like little strings at the end flowing as you walk down the street. It's like she lunges and she nicks a thread of Jesus' garments, the fringe of his cloak. She's healed instantly. But things take a turn. Something that the woman doesn't want to have happen, happens. She doesn't want to be noticed, but Jesus knows. Verse 22 says this, But Jesus turning and seeing her. Jesus stops. The rushing disciples stop. The crowd stops. Jairus stops. And Jesus has to get to the bottom of this. Like the whole thing pauses Imagine being Jairus in this moment. 
Who touched me? Jesus asked. And everyone's denying. Everyone's denying. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. And the disciples are saying, are you kidding, Jesus? Everyone was touching you. Everyone's crowding in on you. It's kind of this funny scene. The woman sees there's no escape. So she falls down before Jesus in front of everyone. And she has to tell. She has to spill the beans. All the embarrassing details about her private burden she's got to share. One of the other, it's Luke, he tells us that she was trembling. What a detail to include. She's trembling. Have you ever spoken to someone and they're so upset that they're, they're visibly shaking? That's this woman. She's trembling. She reveals what's been going on. Why is she trembling? Is she trembling out of embarrassment, perhaps? Is she trembling because this whole rescue mission has been stopped on her account and it's her fault? What will Jesus think when he sees this troubled and distressed woman? What will his opinion be about her? See, that's a, that's a question that I think is good for us to think about because we go through life and we've got trouble, we've got burdens. What's Jesus' opinion about us? I think Jesus' attitude towards her shows a little window into that. I want you to listen to how Jesus speaks to this woman. It's, it's beautiful. Jesus speaks to her, and what does he call her? He says, daughter, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. So there's two daughters in this story. Did you catch that? There's Jairus' daughter, and she's dying, and she's 12 years old. And then there's this woman who's been suffering for 12 years, and Jesus calls her daughter. You know, this, I found it interesting. This is the only account in the whole New Testament where <clears throat> Jesus has an encounter with a woman and calls her daughter. Isn't that neat? Isn't that beautiful? Here's this woman. She's carrying this private burden, not one of sin, but one of shame. How many people know about this? What are people going to think about her if they would know this? When Jesus is going to look at her and he sees the stress and the mess and the burden, what is he going to think about her? Well, Jesus looks at her and he sees her and he calls her daughter. That's just, that's just amazing. Jesus sees her and Jesus loves her and Jesus saves her. And, and I just want us to think about that. Let's just kind of pause the sermon for a minute and just... When Jesus sees you and your life and the struggles that you carry and the burdens that you carry and your family carries, what does Jesus think about you? Does he look down his nose in disgust? Does he view you as uh, annoying, another problem, another prayer request? I think what we find here is that Jesus passionately, deeply, genuinely loves troubled people. That's amazing. So what, what's troubling you today? Jesus sees your burden. There's no burden that you carry that Jesus doesn't see, and there's no pain that you endure that Jesus doesn't care. He walks with you through it. Uh, God is a God who has feelings about you, not just humanity in general, but about you. And one of those things is compassion for the distressed. Now, I have, to, I have to insert something here because it's important. Don't confuse compassion with approval. There's a difference there. And, and sometimes people confuse this and they say, well, 
don't tell me what to do. God loves me. I can do whatever I want to do and God loves me. Compassion is not the same thing as approval. And parents know this. Parents love their children to the end. They don't approve of everything their children do. God does not approve. Jesus does not approve of everything that we do in life. In fact, God pours out wrath against sin. That's important to, to know that and teach that and believe that. But Jesus passionately loves every soul and every troubled heart. And that's what this text shows us. So as you think about your birds, are you sick? Are you in debt? Has work been crazy? Are you sleepless? Is your family broken? God is a God who turns and sees you. And by the way, what deeper joy is there than knowing Jesus sees me? I'm not just lost, but Jesus sees me. So Jesus sees this woman and he cares about this woman. He looks at her and says, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. So now Matthew's account is, is just bullet point summary, but other accounts kind of flesh out the story in more detail. From the other gospel writers, we learn this, that while Jesus is speaking, a messenger comes to Jairus with news. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Because your daughter has died. So I want you to picture this. While, just while Jesus is saying the words, daughter, your Take courage, your faith has made you well. Somebody else is talking while Jesus, those words are coming out of his mouth. And that messenger is saying to Jairus, your daughter is dead. I just, I can't imagine this. Just being a dad, I can't wrap my mind around what that feels like. Jairus, he's the synagogue official. He's witnessed other people getting healed left and right. Here's this random lady on the street she didn't even ask. He had asked. She doesn't even ask. She gets healed. He had had this agonizing choice. Do I stay with my daughter for the last moments of her life? Or do I go on a desperate chase for help and risk losing out in those last moments of her life, not being with her? He took a leap of faith, and now his daughter's dead. Mark tells us an interesting detail about the story. Jesus overhears the message. That's given to him, and he turns to Jairus, and he says, Don't be afraid any longer. Only believe. And make no mistake, for Jairus to believe Jesus, at this moment, he would have to believe that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. That's what faith would look like for him. He believes. He believes. Verse 23. When Jesus came to the official's house and saw the flute players in the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. There's already mourners at the home. There used to be professional mourners. This is part of their culture. And they would grieve loudly, wailing in the streets. That was just how you had a funeral. That's how you grieved loss. It's a chaotic scene, and Jesus arrives and says, leave. And it's kind of interesting to me that it's Jesus taking charge, like it's Jairus' house, it's his family, it's his daughter, but Jesus is clearly the one who's, who's calling the shots right now. He says, leave. The girl hasn't died, but is asleep. 
And that actually raises an interesting question to me. So has the, is the girl dead or not? Is the girl dead or not? Uh, does Jesus mean, oh, she's only in a coma or she's only uh, in a deep sleep? No, the girl has died. The girl has died. But what else do you call it when someone's dead but only temporarily dead? <laughs> you, you might call it sleep. The crowd, this is preposterous. She's dead. The mourners are here. Everyone can see. They're laughing at Jesus. Jesus says, leave. He sent them out. That's a polite way of saying, get. The Greek word means to force to leave, to drive out, to expel. Verse 25, but when the crowd had been sent out, he entered, took her by the hand, and the girl got. I want you to notice the tenderness that Jesus shows here in this moment. He doesn't just yank up the girl's lifeless body and then heal her. No, he just gently, tenderly grabs this 12-year-old girl's hand. Isn't that beautiful? This was unthinkable, by the way. If you're a Jew, you don't touch dead bodies. Like, you just don't. And Jesus gently, tenderly holds her hand, and the life returns to her. The news spreads everywhere. Now, you can't walk away. This story is told kind of like the sandwich. There's Jairus and his daughter, then the woman's interruption, and then Jairus and his daughter. And you can't walk away from this account without seeing Jesus' tenderness and his love for desperate, broken people. Because what's... What, how does this chapter all end? It ends with that verse. He saw the people. They're distressed and dispirited, and he, he has compassion on them. Uh, these desperate people, you know, desperation has a way of instilling humility, doesn't it? Um, desperation has a way of humbling the, the most proud and arrogant people. Jairus is an important guy. He's an official in the synagogue. Now, Capernaum is no Jerusalem, okay? So it's a small place. But still, in his community, he's an important guy. And where do we see him? Falling at Jesus' feet. The woman, likewise, where do we see her? Falling at Jesus' feet. Desperation's not all bad. Sometimes it draws, drives us to our knees. Jesus is looking for dependent people, not arrogant people. Jesus is looking for people who come to him in need, not people who have everything figured out. Desperation isn't all bad. Sometimes it's what God uses to draw us to himself. Arrogance robs our hearts from this joy of knowing that I'm deeply loved despite being weak. And we are weak. I mean, who are we kidding? We are weak people. Apart from Christ, we are desperate and weak. Apart from Christ, our sin leads us to an eternity in hell. And there's no such thing, by the way, as an arrogant faith. You, you don't come to Jesus with this arrogant faith that says, hey, I've got it all figured out, and, uh, and sure, I'll, I'll take forgiveness. No, you come to Jesus on your knees. It's a busy day for Jesus, but there's a, still a couple more things to be done. So that's the, that's the main thing, those two accounts. But there's two other things I want to notice briefly couple other miracles verse 27 we'll read down to verse 31 and jesus went on from there as jesus went on from there 
Two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. Two more desperate people. How does Jesus feel about desperate people? He heals them. He has compassion on them. We see them crying out. It's actually really interesting what they cry out. They call him the son of David. The very first verse of Matthew says this. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. And here's the first time in Matthew where we're hearing people address Jesus as the son of David. I think that's amazing. These men professed their faith. Notice, by the way, how the theme of faith is so central to these accounts. Jesus says to the woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Then to Jairus, he says, Don't, uh, he said, take heart, uh, only believe. To the men, they have faith. Verse 29, he touches their eyes. Notice, isn't that interesting how much touching has happened? The woman touches Jesus' garment. Then Jesus touches the dead girl. And then these men, uh, Jesus touches their eyes. You start to see the genuine compassion that Jesus has toward troubled people. Then one more, as they leave the house, there's a man who's mute. He cannot talk. In fact, he's being oppressed by a demon. And this man's brought to him. The demon is cast out. The mute man speaks. The crowds are amazed. They've never seen anything like this, but the Pharisees act differently. They can't deny the power, but they can only criticize the source. Notice that in the span, just one afternoon here, Jesus shows his power and his authority, his authority over demons, over being mute, over blindness, over the flow of blood, and over death itself. You walk away from this chapter saying, who is this guy? And then Matthew gives kind of the summary of what Jesus was doing. And it's important for us, verse 35, Matthew kind of tells us, these are kind of just these representative stories. You get the sense that there's a lot of, this is just cram-packed, Jesus' agenda. And here's just a couple representative stories. Verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So Jesus, it's important to note, Jesus didn't just go around healing people. He was a preacher. And what did he preach about? The the gospel of the kingdom. I want to, and that's important because every person that Jesus healed in these accounts are, are now dead. The woman with the flow of blood, she has died. The little girl, Jairus, all these are now dead. If the only thing Jesus had to offer you and I was momentarily healing. That's not enough. Jesus comes and offers more. He offers the gospel and eternal life. That's what Jesus did. And that's, don't walk away from this passage and think the best thing Jesus has for me is physical healing. That's not true because the biggest problem you and I have is the problem of our sin. All right, so Jesus has this heart for people and heart for the lost. In verse 37 and 38, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest 
to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus has compassion and a heart for the lost. But I love this text. I love this whole passage because it shows this little window. How does Jesus feel about distressed people? And again, let's read it. Verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is traveling and his opinion of the people, they're rough around the edges. There's, they're, they're really troubled. But notice... It's that very thing that draws the heart of Jesus to them. You know, you might think, boy, that person over there, they're troubled and they just all time the problem. If I hang out with them, they're just going to weigh me down. I'm going to avoid them. But Jesus is so different than that. He sees the problem and it's because of their troubles that that draws his heart to them. So just... To wrap it up here, friends, what burdens are you carrying? If you were to stop and think, what are the top one, two burdens that I'm carrying this month, this fall? I think it's good for us to stop and remember. How does Jesus think about me? How does he feel about me? Jesus passionately, deeply, genuinely loves struggling people. He does. Compassion is not the same thing as approval. Don't confuse those things but he has compassion for the burdened heart. And last is this thought. There may be some who hear this message, but the greatest thing you need is to hear the, gospel, the message of the gospel of the kingdom. The greatest problem that we have is our sin. Our sin separates us from God, and God pours out wrath on sin, but the good news is that Jesus on the cross drank the cup of God's wrath. And because he died on the cross for our sin, our sin can be forgiven if we do what? We must repent and believe. And that's good news. That's even also a part of God's compassion for the lost and broken people. So I love this text. Let's go ahead and close our time in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for your love and compassion. Lord, uh, would you comfort us with these words? Would you cause this to, uh, to draw our hearts into worship because of your love for us? And we pray all these things in Christ's name.